Well, you can see I'm in my white suit. We'll be passing out cigars in just a moment. Well, you think I'm kidding, don't you? <laughs> You'll see. Uh, I, I recently, I, we named uh, our little boy uh, Jordan Cassidy Prather, and uh, someone said, uh, you realize that's J.C.? <laughs> and so I thought, in honor of J.C., I should wear the, the great man's suit, J.C. Penny. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's Johnny Carson. Uh, okay. Since this is a day of celebration, uh, we're going to have some extra music. Uh, and also, since this is the church of white light and white sugar, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we'll have extra white sugar today. And first, the white sugar. Come on, kids. All right. Everybody gets a cigar. <laughs> now, John, John demonstrated what you're supposed to do with a bubblegum cigar. You're going to think this is apocryphal, but when I gave John his bubblegum cigar, he did like this. <laughs> so that's what you must do, of course. You must smell the aroma. You'll notice that they're wrapped for your protection. As, as John says, germs are invisible like God. <laughs> All right. Now, the second thing that we have for you this morning is no announcements. And the third thing we have for you is no collection. All right. Now, this is Stephen Munson Ryder, Maria De Silva, and John McLeod. You can imagine having three people like that do Sunday school. All three of them founders of schools here in Santa Fe. Uh, they've been our Sunday school teachers this summer, and now they're off to South America and Greece and Egypt. I mean, excuse me. Um, so this is their last Sunday, and uh, they have prepared something for us. The, uh, the kids are going to play some music for you, and uh, then I hope that uh, Stephen and Maria will just say a few words about how to leave a child and how to pick a child up. I asked them to do that. <laughs> uh, because we've, we've, we've spoken here about how important it is when we come home, how important it is when we see our friend, when we leave our friend. And I thought maybe it would be good just to hear about it from the standpoint of a child also. So could you bring in... Uh, Stephen and Maria. Stephen Munson Ryder. Well, Maria De Silva and John McLeod and I, we've been working the program with the little ones for the last couple of months and uh, had a good time. Our goal has been to try to make it as fun for them as it is for you to come here. And uh, it's interesting, one of the challenging points that we've encountered with the program is that, uh, you know, parents bringing their families and we have that room back there, the kids just getting 
dropped off sometimes, and it's a little scary sometimes for him. Uh, you know, perhaps you come late, or I don't know what the reason might be for a quick exit, but it's interesting how the uh, what we're left with in that kind of a situation, and um, you know, children are so sensitive, and and uh, you know, the leaving of their parents and everything. Uh, we've noticed some of the little ones, especially at points, get kind of traumatized. They're not quite sure what's going on, why they're being left. And uh, well, I was thinking about a little situation that Maria was involved in last week where we had a child just real upset and didn't want to leave mom. And mom wanted to get in here because the service had started. And uh, so Maria stepped in and it was nothing more than a little situation of uh, saying to the child directly, hey, do you want to? come see with me where your mom's going to be and brought the child right into the church. And it was real neat that the child just kind of checked out the situation and opted for, you know, the back room. <laughs> but it happened so quickly that the kid was kind of, you know, then the hands were in the Play-Doh and everything was great. And so just to say it, sometimes it just takes that little extra and, you know, each situation is different, but uh, that little extra to make the your child feel safe with with people who are not their parents. And uh, so maybe you could just bear that in, in mind. But, um, oh, they're wonderful children. I mean, lucky us, all of us, to have these children and to to just see them growing into this world and oh it's grand so and I thank you for your kids and the chance I think I told you the story uh, I was out at Little Earth School uh, Steve and Maria founded Little Earth and there was a boy out there who uh, would ordinarily be called a discipline problem and uh, someone was there to pick him up, and he didn't have his lunch pail. And he was lying on the floor in uh, a sulk or a, what, something, one of those states, you know. He wasn't going to go find his uh, lunch pail. And Maria uh, just plopped down on the floor. On He was on his back looking up, shaking his head. And she just dropped down on her back along with him, so they were both just on the floor, and then she just started chatting with him, like you and I might chat about the weather, you know, <laughs> and after just a moment, she said, uh, you think it's time that we go get your lunchbox? He said, yeah. Got <laughs> time is the one luxury that we don't give ourselves enough of. Give yourself, give your child, give your spouse all the time in the world. In that sense, time is love. Now, of course, that was a lead into uh, the St. Francis prayer, <laughs> so, which we've been talking about the last couple of Sundays. Let me read it again for you. Lord, let me be an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon where there's discord, union. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. Where there's sadness, joy is where uh, we stopped last time. And so let's consider that part of the, the prayer. And I thought it would be good to start with music and children because both music and children so often are the bringers of a lightness to things. Now, just to have the little children pass out the, the uh, bubblegum cigars, just everybody just started uh, laughing. Because for children, everything is for playing with. And we know this about children. They have a single purpose. Now, actually, we've got, uh, as you know, a five-day-old uh, little boy. At that age, it's everything is for sucking. <laughs> you dare not get anything too close to the mouth. because. <laughs> but a little later, everything is for playing with. And it's a wonderful, beautiful purpose. Uh, adults sometimes get a little upset because uh, we have very 
strong notions about what should not be played with. And of course, if it's something that might hurt the child, uh, it's a good rule. But so often we've, we've hedged ourselves in with these rules. We were uh, at the hospital, and it was a very long and very difficult birth. Uh, but but uh, oh, at the, if you don't know this, American doctors have have uh, have discovered having siblings present at the birth, as if this hasn't been going on for thousands of years. You know, all the rest of the world, but suddenly, our American doctors have discovered this. Research is being done about it. Tentative statements are being made, like we don't know much about this yet, but. <laughs> But so far, all the research shows that this is a very good thing. It doesn't upset the children, and they, they feel very close to the, the child uh, if they see it come into the world, rather than uh, if suddenly uh, someone is brought home, you know, and uh, they want it taken out the next day. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, there was a uh, Gail thought that maybe she had not been courageous enough, and so the nurses uh, were telling her about a woman that was in there just a few days before who was screaming, put it back, put it back. <laughs> she thought that the labor could be stopped somehow. <laughs> but Gail was constructed for, uh, according to uh, one of the doctors, uh, for about a uh, seven and a half pound delivery. And this a child was nine one, <laughs> and uh, was built like uh, Newhouse, you know, <laughs> the Dallas Cowboys. Um, so uh, there was lots of drama as this was going on. Uh, lots of blood. John said, "Oh, you know, he was just very excited about all the blood." Uh, <laughs> four years old, and then. I know this will shock some of you, but this is the way they're doing it now. This is modern medicine. Uh, then when the placenta was born, this was just too much. And uh, he said, ooh, yuck. <laughs> yucky, yucky. Would you hold that up again, please? <laughs> and the doctor had to hold up three different times for him <laughs> explain to him how it worked and everything said this is what it fed the baby so everything is for playing with you see and isn't that a delightful thing to have that single purpose it doesn't have to be that purpose that's the purpose of a young child everything is for peace everything is for forgiveness Everything is for gentleness. You see how that works just as well? And the light of God can come into any situation. And that's why children are bringers of light. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. You don't go around making people happy. But you sow joy. That's the thing. I've mentioned uh, Dr. Sham uh, here before. Uh, Unfortunately, he doesn't list his name in the phone book under Dr. Shaw, so uh, I, I know I'm not having hordes of people descend upon him, but uh, uh, he's a man who is uh, obviously very far along and therefore very gentle and very happy. And he's a doctor. He was a surgeon in uh, India um, and has come to this country recently. And someone from the church uh, recently took uh, her husband, I have permission to tell the story, uh, took her husband to see Dr. Sham. And uh, this man had been severely uh, battered during the Second World War, had just received uh, numerous wounds all over his body. So she took him to see Dr. Sham because there were still many complications from all these old wounds. And Dr. Sham started to, to uh, examine him, and uh, he would point to something. He said, oh, he said, uh, he looked pointing at his elbow, he said, what, what happened there? 
man would tell the story. He said, oh, and pointing his leg. What? Tell me about this. What happened there? And he was just going all over his body, pointing at one thing. Oh, now what's what happened here? And after just a minute, Dr. Shang started smiling. And he said, your body is a mess. <laughs> and the man started laughing and his wife started laughing and Dr. Shams' wife started laughing. And uh, from what I hear, there's, you know, this is never hurt. You've never heard such. They literally doubled over it, this statement. He said. <laughs> and um, the woman told me that this was the first time anyone had ever reacted to his body in that way. <laughs> and that it was at that point that healing began to take place. Do you see that? When he could laugh at it. I'm not suggesting that you go around laughing at people's <laughs> afflictions now. This is an inner laughing <laughs> that bubbles up, you see. Everything is for gentleness. Everything is for laughter, if it's a gentle laughter. If it's in a twinkling of an eye, that's how fast the whole mood, the whole situation can change. In a twinkling, twinkling of, of an eye. And so there I was uh, yesterday morning in the bathtub with John. I had my bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> Sliced bananas right there. And... Uh, there was a, a knock at the front door. And about that time, John's foot hit the Cheerios. <laughs> and so there I was. There's a knock. <laughs> there I was, uh, the knock at the front door, and I was covered with wet Cheerios. <laughs> Banana slices were lodged in strategic places in my body. Now, I want you to know that for a moment I forgot that everything is for playing with, you see. <laughs> ah, and I got mad at John uh, for just a second. And then I saw the expression on his face, and I realized what a mistake I had made. And what was it that I expected of a four-year-old? I mean, what, is he not supposed to spill anything? There was no hope of my answering the front door. I just had to wait for them to go away. <laughs> and so I turned my thought instead to the Cheerios. I said, how would a young child look at this? Because a young child would find great pleasure in being covered with bananas and Cheerios. You see, we think there is only one way of looking at everything. This is what plagues us as we go through the day. Justified anger, justified resentment. This, this, this remark calls for such and such a, an emotion. This situation means that I must be afraid. What happened to me years ago means I must still be bitter. There is no other way. Of course, there are a thousand ways. If we were to, and as a matter of fact, uh, someone has asked for a baptism. Uh, I'm thinking of the Cheerios. Uh. <laughs> now, let's say that if we insisted that each and every one of you be covered with Cheerios and banana slices, do you realize... No, we're not going to do that, no. Um, do you realize how many different reactions there would be to that? <laughs> there is no single reaction called for. But as you go through the day, Notice how you think you are locked in to one attitude after the other. You actually believe you are a victim of the day. That such, and th such a thing has happened and it is bringing forth. A hand has been reached into your heart and it is dragging forth this particular emotion. And you think there is no choice. Of course you must respond that way. But if you will pause just a moment, as I did, <laughs> covered with Cheerios, you can see another way. All I did was ask myself, how would a child react to this? It doesn't matter whether you ask yourself anything, but if you will give your heart a moment, it will show you 10,000 other ways to respond to this. 
a million happy ways to respond to this. And you can let it go. And you won't have to hold people's behavior against them. And so the thing that occurred to me was, I wonder what would happen if we opened the drain. Because now we had a whole flotilla, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> this was England and Spain all over again, right there in the bathtub. And so we opened the drain, and sure enough, there was a, a, a what do you call them? Not a whirlwind, but a whirlpool. Yeah, whirlpool started. And this, I can tell you, must try this now. It's a very interesting sight to see a hundred Cheerios being sucked down into the drain. That was simply another way of looking at it. And that's all we need to know. That is how A Course in Miracles came into being. Did you know that? There we were. <laughs> there you had two conservatives, tenured, full professors, Columbia University, both of them teaching abnormal psychology. One of the, uh, one of them, uh, the editor of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, one of them, uh, a, uh, uh, a research, research assistant to the other. Helen was Bill's research assistant. And they had gone through one more infighting episode there at the university, just as, as in all universities, where people in high positions seem to be backbiting and climbing and clawing to the top. And you know all the stuff that goes on in organizations in this world. And uh, Dr. Thetford said to Dr. Shuckman, there has got to be a better way. And Helen said, Yes, there has got to be. I'll help you find it. And this was so totally out of character for Helen Shuckman to say that Bill was shocked by the statement and remembered it ever since. And it was shortly after that that Helen called Bill one night and said, I've gone crazy. Now, these people knew what crazy was. They, they talk crazy. She said, I have gone crazy. He said, what's happened? She said, every time I try to go to sleep, I hear a voice. He said, oh, what does it say? This is a course in miracles. Please take notes. And he said, well, why don't you take the notes? Bring it in tomorrow. We'll take a look at it. And if it is crazy, we'll just tear it up and we won't tell anyone because uh, he didn't want to lose his research assistant. And uh, I hadn't planned to do this, but this is what she brought in the next morning. This is a course in miracles. It is a required course. Only the time you take it is voluntary. Free will does not mean that you can establish the curriculum. It means only that you can elect what you want to take at a given time. The Course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It does aim, however, at removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. The opposite of love is fear, but what is all-encompassing can have no opposite. This Course can therefore be summed up very simply in this way. Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. And so he took a look at that. He said, I'm not sure I understand what that means, but this doesn't sound like schizophrenic dissociation. <laughs> and so started a project that was taking place before the other professors got there early in the morning, the doors shut, the lunch hour with the blinds literally pulled down, the door locked for 10 years at Columbia University, Helen would receive this lovely iambic pentameter, but she so dearly loved. She hated the Course in Miracles, said it was all poppycock. 
should have nothing to do with it. It had words like God and Jesus and stuff like that in it. But she loved the music of the verse. And even up to the day uh, that she died, uh, she would have nothing to do with it. Uh, would not, uh, didn't even ask for a uh, royalty agreement when she turned it over to the Foundation for Inner Peace. And all that because someone said there must be another way. There has to be another way. If you will just pause during the day, whenever you are unhappy, and say to yourself, of course there is another way. Let me be still a moment. Let me see what comes into my still and open mind. In the manual of A Course in Miracles, there is a little road map. And I hope that all of you know about it. It's under the section entitled Trust, on beginning on page 8 of the manual. And it tells you the stages that you must go through before you awaken. It's a nice thing to study that and to see where you are. I can tell you where most of you are from counseling you. Uh, those of you who have come and talked to me, and those of you that I know, I can tell where the bulk of the people who come here are. And that is, you are just leaving the fourth stage and you are entering the fifth stage. And so let me explain that just a little bit. The fourth stage is called a period of settling down. And it is characterized by several things. But one of the things that is always very noticeable to me in counseling people, and it was noticeable to me after I got through that particular stage, was the st statement, the teacher of God has not yet come as far as he thinks. And so this is true of many of you. You know a great deal of spiritual truth. You have gone through uh, many seminars, read many books. Uh, you have learned something about meditation. Uh, you have visited uh, many of the, of the great uh, healers. You've had your palm read. You know your sign. You even know your rising sign. <laughs> and you think that you have come a very, very long way. <clears throat> and this gives you this period of rest, among other things. Now, when you really begin the fifth step in earnest, you will think that you are back in kindergarten. And that is the point in which many of you are right now. You are just leaving thinking that you knew a lot and now thinking that you don't know anything. The ego vacillates between these two positions, thinking that it has made no progress and that all progress is hopeless and that the only thing open to it is discouragement. So discouragement is love of the ego. Or thinking that it is very far along and comparing itself to other people. That's why the prayer... My ego is no better than yours. Is a divine, holy, powerful, completely adequate prayer. Anytime you find yourself judging someone, you might remember those words. My ego is no better than yours. You will not improve the ego. You will only relinquish it. And that is what these stages are. They are stages of relinquishment. And so as you begin the fifth stage which is called a period of unsettling. <laughs> Many of you know this well. It will feel as if you have been flunked right back to the beginning. You don't know what you know. You are quite confused, and it is all right to be confused. It is, in fact, a good thing to be confused as long as you do not add discouragement to the confusion. But if you can honestly say, I do not know what to do, you are indeed making progress. When you have resigned as your own teacher, then you are promoted. And so in this fifth stage is this statement, the description of it. 
were not each step in this direction, the direction that the uh, fifth stage uh, indicates, were not each step in this direction so heavily reinforced, your progress would be hard indeed. Or your progress would be impossible or something. I forget how that sentence is ended. But that phrase right there is, were, it, were not each step in this direction so heavily reinforced. And so that is the point in which most of you find yourself. You are having to learn the same things over and over and over. And you're hitting yourself over the head with why can't I learn something so simple? Because the same lesson rises up before you again and again and again. And you think you will never learn it. Where there is sadness, sow joy. Let me give you a key to sowing joy in your life. And that is, forget the mistake instantly. Dr. Shum has not completely relinquished his ego, even though it's extraordinarily weak. There are people on this earth whose egos are even weaker than Dr. Shum, but his is the weakest of any person I have personally met. And so he is a teacher to me in that sense, and that I love being around the man because I can see what a peaceful, happy person does in so many different circumstances. And I am personally grateful that he still has some ego because I like seeing what he does when his ego asserts itself, which is very, very, very rarely. But I want to tell you on one occasion, about one occasion which it did. Gail and I had seen the film Gandhi, and we were over at Dr. Shams, and we were talking to him about the film. And he was telling us about Gandhi. In India, uh, there you are born into your profession uh, still to some degree. And this is also true to some degree of uh, the Ayurvedic physician. So his father was a physician, and he was a physician. So he used to go with his dad, who was Gandhi's physician, and treated Gandhi himself, uh, I think, the last year of Gandhi's uh, life. And uh, he was telling us about Gandhi, and he was telling us about the times. And suddenly, as if a cloud had gone over the sun, I saw his face darken, and he started talking about what the British did, the atrocities of the British. And it lasted for about five seconds. And then the cloud left. And then there was Dr. Jam again. It was just a momentary, he got caught up in it. He was telling the story, and for just a moment, he got up in it, he got caught up in it. And for just a moment, I could see just a flicker of the old hatred that he must have one time felt for that British occupation of his country. Now, if that had happened to me, and there were two people there who looked to me as teacher, it would have shattered my mind. I would have thought about it. I would have said, why did I do this in front of my students? I'm not being a teacher. And I would have been preoccupied with this for a minute or two or five minutes or half an hour or something like that. The difference was that he was not preoccupied with it for one second. He simply had made a mistake and he went right back to walking toward God. There was no reference to it. There was no apology. There wasn't anything. There was just this little cloud that went over the sun, and then it passed on. May I tell you, your day can be that way. You are wasting far more time thinking about your mistakes than you are making them. You, a mistake will not delay you whatsoever. A mistake will not delay you. A mistake will not delay you. Only thinking about it will delay you. You cannot help but make mistakes. 
And so the lesson to learn, learn it this morning, and you will sow joy, is forget the mistake quickly. Say to yourself, how often have I thought that I made a mistake and looked back and have seen that it was not a mistake at all? I am in no position to judge. Only the ego judges. Do not fall into the ego's trap of trying to understand and trying to explain. Just say, I may have made a mistake. A mistake calls only for correction. And how do you correct a mistake? By simply turning back and continuing your walk toward God. I can tell you what happens as you go along. You do not become overtly wise. Uh, people do not feel some sort of magnetic field in your presence and there are not uh, dancing lights around your head. And a whole street of cripples do not throw down their crutches as you drive your car by. If you could do such a thing, you often, very, very often, would choose not to do it. You might occasionally, very quietly, grant someone's request. If they ask you to heal them, you might heal them. But you would do that very, very sparingly. Because you would notice the results. But so often it scares the person. Now they're looking at you differently. They think you healed them. And you notice that they go right out and get the new disease next week. You see. So it's not that your natural ability to heal and to bless doesn't increase. But this isn't what marks your progress. Even whether you think you have become a healer, you are in no position to judge. Because to be a teacher of God is a higher calling than to be a healer. As Joe Goldsmith saw so clearly toward the end of his life and advised his students to now stop healing and to start teaching because the healing was not causing any permanent change. It was amounting to nothing. So to be a teacher of God means to be unrecognized and it means to be dispensable. A teacher of God never runs after a student. A teacher of God teaches and usually those around are not even aware that there is a teaching taking place because there is not necessarily any verbal message attached to it whatsoever. You will become a teacher of God more quickly if you will be like Dr. Sham and if you think you have made a mistake, go back to the few simple things and that will be true wisdom. When you realize it is so simple, when you realize that there are only a few, few things to do, that you've always known them, and that the only question is, are you now ready this instant? 1144, are you ready now, this instant, to do the few simple things that you know to do? Or do you wish to launch on one more expedition to find new ways of stating them? Dr. Sham is a swami. Those of you who know about that know that there's a great deal of uh, study and ritual and stages and so forth that you must go through. He confessed to me once that uh, he said, you know, I never studied the Holy Scriptures. And I was indeed shocked because I thought that you had to study them for years and years and years and years to become a Swami. He said, I am familiar with them. Because, he said, my mother used to have me read them to her when I was a boy. Uh, when she was six, she would say, read such and such a passage from this book and read such and such a passage from that book and so forth. But he said, you know, I quickly realized that they were all saying the same thing. Speak the truth 
and walk the path of righteousness. Now, if they're all saying, speak the truth and walk the path of righteousness, why do I need to study them? <laughs> so what is the little simple thing that you do to sow joy? I would like to recommend that you study something, that you study the beginning of chapter 30 in the text. It's a little section called The New Beginning. It's the start of chapter 30 in the text. Now, what it does is it gives you a few simple rules on how to start the day over. That is the stage in which most of us are right now. We are making many mistakes and we're, and we're getting unhappy and we're getting irritated and you are far enough along now to begin to recognize it. Because you remember the days, don't you, in which you didn't think you were ever conflicted. You were never scared. You didn't have any judgments. There's, a, there's, a, there's some lessons in the Course in Miracles in which it, it talks about looking at your, uh, looking at everyone that you know and seeing what judgments you have. It starts out very gently. It says, uh, perhaps if you don't like the person, there's a judgment there. It points out very obvious things. <laughs> then later it introduces the concept, shows you how, in fact, there is no one that you have not judged against. Now, there are people, and you and I were one of them not very long ago, who did not believe this of ourselves. We did not think we judged anybody. We didn't think we were conflicted about everything that we did as we went through the day. Most of you have begun to realize just how conflicted you are. And so what you must do once you realize your unhappiness, because if you don't realize your unhappiness and you think it's normal and you think it's the way life is, why would you reach for anything more? You would just continue going down this same dark, stumbling path thinking, well, this is just the way it is, and I'm very far along. <laughs> so what you want to do now is to learn how to start over. I'd like to recommend that you begin studying that chapter. I would recommend that you read that chapter at least once a week for the next three months. If you can learn how to start the day over, you will advance by light years. And it takes no more than that. The recognition that something has happened, that you don't like the way you feel. That is the key, that you do not like the way you feel. You must understand it is not necessary to continue not liking the way you feel, whether it's fear, tiredness, anxiety, sickness, any form of misery. It is not necessary. And so here's what you do in the beginning. And this is, seems almost ridiculous that you should be put through this because you're so far along. You will start the day out. Of course, the first thing that you will do is that you will rise up and you will turn your thought to God before you talk of other things, before you answer the phone, before you get caught up in yesterday's business. And start projecting into the future. Of course, the first thing you do is you turn your thought to God, to gentleness, to peace, to love. Of course, the first thing you do is you set clearly, sharply in mind your single purpose for the day. Which can be anything. Something you love. To forgive everything. To respond to every call for help with gentleness. Anything. And you start out, and you walk a few paces in relative peace because there is no absolute peace at this point, and it's only your ego that tells you that you're not experiencing absolute peace. Assume that you do not know what peace is, but you do know when you're conflicted and you don't like the way you feel. And so you start out in the morning, and you walk toward God a few steps, and then something happens. 
Now, you will eventually learn the rules that will allow you to avoid accepting unhappiness in the beginning. And one of the rules is that you do not expect anything from the situation whatsoever. You do not expect anything from your job. Your job is not there to make you happy. Your boss is not there to treat you fairly. Your spouse is not there to love you. Your child is not there to be behaved. And you will see eventually how you have set yourself self up for these little, because you think each situation must go a certain way, unconsciously. And so suddenly there is this feeling of a bumpy road, of a shattering, of a something, of a falling apart, of a losing it. That, of course, happened because you thought you knew how it should go. And you thought it was important how it should go. And, of course, it makes no difference how it should go. Whether the Cheerios fall into the tub makes no difference, do you see? Because the Cheerios are always going to fall into the tub. It's the nature of the world. And so you've walked a few paces in relative peace, relative peace, and now you realize something's happened. Now what are you going to do? That's the important thing. This is when you're going to really start walking toward God, is when you realize that something has happened and you do something about it. And what do you do? Just sit quietly. Just watch your emotions for a moment. Do the simple thing that you know to do, just to be quiet, to let the thing pass away, You've grabbed a hold of one of the little fishes, one of the ego's little fishes that are swimming down the stream. Notice in your mind there's an endless uh, stream of little fishes. Grab me, grab me, grab me. Yes, you grabbed one. So what are you going to do? As you rail against yourself, you still hold to the fish. You sit down. You drop it back into the stream. You let your mind settle. Remind yourself of your purpose. You say to yourself, this is really very, very simple. I didn't say easy, notice. <laughs> it's very simple. And you start again. And it only lasts three minutes. And then you start again. And it lasts five minutes. And then you start again. It lasts 30 seconds. And you start again. It's that willingness to start again. To go back to something more and more simple until you have found a place of strength, until you have found something so simple that even you can do it because the Cheerios have fallen, fallen all over you. And this is very upsetting, and so what can you do? Find something so simple that even you can do it. In that particular state, you can do it. In another state, you can, start, you can do something that seems to you or to your ego a little bit more sophisticated. This is all poppycock. It doesn't matter whether it's sophisticated or not. It matters only that we start again. And what will you walk toward and what will you become? Well, let me read you what you will leave. All right, now you can get out your pencils. Wear light-colored clothing. Black may be dramatic, but people warm up to, quote, emotional colors such as pink and red. If you are with a friend, make sure you stand or sit facing outward toward the room, a position which shows that you are interested in meeting others. <laughs> Move around. It shows, you, it shows that you are lively and in control of the situation. When standing in place, don't fold your arms across your chest or clasp your hands. Hold a hot drink. <laughs> a tilted head and toes, uh, no, a tilted head and toes that are angled outward are other clues that you are an outgoing person. So this, this article is advising you to become a cockatoo. Do you see you do like this? It goes on and takes up other things that we were so concerned about before, like picking the right necklace. <laughs> now that those few inches between your head and shoulders are a fashion hotspot, 
Learn, learn how to choose and wear necklaces that make the most of it. If your neck is somewhat less than swan-like, chokers, chains, and chunky beads that sit high above the collarbone could make it seem even shorter. Is your neck too thick? Watch out for very delicate short chains and beads. They're known to bite thick necks, you see. Crepey neck? Crepey. That's as, as in crepe is your neck like crepe. This is the way that you word it, you see. Um, cover up with a lady dye choker. Row on row of pearls snuggling around the throat. <laughs> Doesn't tell you where you get rows upon rows of pearls. <laughs> you marry a prince. This is what you do. <laughs> <laughs> now, fellow dispensapalians, there are people that take this seriously. There are people who actually try to tilt their little toes outward when they're at a party, and they think this is important. Do you see what we have left home for? You see what we have left God for, peace for, gentleness for? Now's the time to, to leave behind all this silly stuff, which is so innocent that we all went through and that we should never condemn anyone for having concerns like this because we still have so many left. Do the few simple things and sow joy instead of sadness. Open up your heart and let the sun shine in. Breathe in the fragrance of God's presence. Soak in the warmth of his love. Be so still and so conscientious and begin again so often that very gradually you begin to glow inside. You will know when this happens. You will begin to feel the peace of God spread like butter all over this flapjack of earth. Do you like that analogy? <laughs> well, they told us to do things like this at Manny's uh, school, you know. If you want to be a minister, you've got to use analogies. Be happy. Be gentle. And after the service, please eat a donut. 